0: Good morning, everyone. Today we are concluding our series on Christ's new creational kingdom. Several weeks ago, we started our exploration by looking at a passage in the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. This is the story of the healing of the paralytic. And as we were studying this passage, we noted that Jesus acts here in this passage as high priest and also as the new temple. And as we're interpreting this passage within the context of the Gospel of Mark, which is nothing else than an exposition of what Christ's gospel, Christ's gospel of the kingdom of God is, we concluded that we need to think of the kingdom of God foremost in priestly terms, that Christ is proclaiming a temple kingdom. We substantiated this this observation Then in the following week by tracing the theme temple and priesthood from creation to new creation, and noted that indeed it is a central theme right from the beginning to the end. After that, we started to look at have a closer look at Christ's kingdom. And I suggested to you that the one way to look or the one to visualize. Christ's new creation kingdom is to imagine a diamond. A beautifully cut diamond. And as we look at the different facets of this diamond, we discover different aspects of Christ's kingdom. So for instance, we looked at the new humanity and noted that the new humanity is created by Christ, who is in the center as the progenitor of the new humanity, breathing the spirit of life into the new humanity, and by that overcoming age-old fragmentation and outright hostility among human beings that started in Genesis 3 and somehow climaxed in Genesis chapter 11. Then we turned the diamond a little bit and discovered the new temple with Christ being the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone of this new temple, building the members of the new humanity into this temple as living stones, who find meaning and significance and reconciliation with God in this temple as they serve as priests, both collectively and individually. Well, this leads us then to look at a different aspect, namely to see Christ's kingdom as a living organism, with the church being the body of Christ and him being the fountainhead who fuels the body where then each individual member has a purpose, has a task where everyone can contribute and no one is left out and no one is left behind. Well, we turned a little bit more the diamond and then did see a vine, a vine with branches and fruit, with Jesus being the wine and the believers, the church being the branches who bear fruit in their lives. And we noted that this is only possible If the branches are in total dependence on the vine, on Christ. And what fruit the branches bring forth is not done on their own, by their own strength, but only comes through Christ. And then finally, we discover that after all, it's a kingdom. It's a powerful kingdom with Christ being seated on the throne in the heavenlies. And the citizens of this kingdom, the believers, step into the footsteps of Christ who humbled himself and then elevated by God sits on the throne in the same way that through the weakness of the believers and the meekness of their ways the power of the kingdom is made even more manifest. Well, now would be a good way not just to stop this sermon but to stop our series with this summary of what we talked about over the last weeks. If, If what I've shared with you would be only a theological concept, an abstract idea, or a doctrine where we only need to consent to and say, okay, check, we move on to the next topic. But it's not. Christ's a new creation kingdom is a reality and is unfolding since 2,000 years. And also, its promises in real-life scenarios, the promise of peace with God and with one another, a sense of belonging, meaning, purpose, being part of something bigger than oneself with an eternal perspective. And so every generation of believers is called to realize these things in their own time, in their own context. Which, of course, means that then every church, local church, denomination or church organization can do this better or can do this worse. Or with other words, a church can become defunct or corrupt or it can live up to its prophetic ministry. Now what do I mean with a church can become defunct or corrupt? One of our church planning professors at seminary noted that churches have kind of a life cycle. So they start out as a movement, vibrant, being innovative, culturally relevant, and they flourish. turn into kind of an institution or an organization. And then over time, though, something happens and they become or look like a museum and eventually a mausoleum and then die. Because maybe they lost their cultural relevance, maybe they became so focused on the institution itself and then lose uh, their power. This is actually not what I'm really uh, I worry about because I personally acknowledge that churches might have their time. Like the church that served its purpose 500 years ago and was involved in revival, maybe that was their purpose. And it was okay that it somehow um, disappeared. In or during our seminary time, we were part of a Brazilian church plant that was under the roof of an established Southern Baptist church. And this was a huge church. Actually, it used to be a huge church. The sanctuary could host, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000 people, two stories with all kinds of rooms for Sunday school. Unbelievable. But at the time when we were there, there were maybe 200 regular attendance left and then when we visited the church later maybe 100 and two or three years ago they sold the building and was gone but this is not what i'm really concerned about what i'm concerned about is that when a church starts to move christ out of the center of the diamond because churches who do that not necessarily die they might actually from a worldly perspective Flourish, be successful, and endure. I want to illustrate this with one aspect of of Christ's kingdom, namely with a new temple. I would like to read to you Matthew chapter 23. Probably all familiar with that, with Christ being pretty harsh. On the religious establishment. Now, this is an extensive uh, passage, so hopefully um, you can bear with me as I'm um, going to read through this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor and the banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he, comes, when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple, swears by it, and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven, swears by God's throne, and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law. Uh, Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a net, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, while the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside, you appear to people as righteous. But on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part in, with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of wipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers, some of them, you will kill and crucify others. You will flock in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth. All this will come upon this generation. Well, this is a lengthy paragraph or even a passage, and it's really a devastating indictment of the religious establishment in Jerusalem. Mostly the Pharisees and and scribes. And I don't think Jesus is condemning all Pharisees and all scribes, but the ones who are setting the tone within the establishment. Now, how did he come to this? Why is Jesus doing this? Or what What is responsible for Jesus' condemnation? Where does he see the reason... They have gone astray. Well, a quick overview of the passage will help us to locate the cause of the problem. So this passage starts with a kind of an introduction, and then comes seven bows, and then some concluding verses. And each time in Scripture something with a seven shows up, alarm clocks should go off. Because usually it it means a sense of Completion. And it also can be nicely divided in two parts, with one thing in the middle. So we have the seven woes, so we can, the first three, and then the last three in the middle is the fourth. And I think in that fourth one we find the reason for all this condemnation. Jesus is saying, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These values are the values the law of the Old Testament is built on. And it's not a coincidence, because these values are actually character traits of God. God. In the book of Exodus, God is revealing himself to Moses in one of the great self-revelations of Scripture. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, it says, And he passed in front of Moses, namely God, or the Lord, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he, does, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Now the law, of course, is built on the holiness of God, but the holiness is kind of a little bit difficult to, to describe because God is the completely other. But out of his holiness flows his character, and his character is far more tangible. And so the law built on faithfulness, justice a mercy or a loving kindness, it's far more comprehensible and also it's far easier to hold someone accountable to. That's the reason why the prophets always appeal to these character traits of God when they are condemning Israel for not complying with the law, for failing to keep the covenant. So for instance, um, the prophet Amos writes here in chapter 5, Verse 21, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. And the prophet Micah adds here, He, namely God, has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So what Jesus is saying is here that the religious establishment moved the character of God out of the center of the religious, so to speak, system of their time. And they built a different system upon it. And so he's condemning them for for these obvious things, namely that a self-righteous establishment has developed that shows a false piety, that is concerned with outward piety, that is concerned with honor and power for themselves. This is one reason why they're so... um, I almost call it obsessed with boundary markers, like the Sabbath, with clean and unclean, because that's easy to show how holy you are by following these outward things. Also, the way they dress with these phylacteries and tassels. Today, we probably would call this virtual signaling. It's easy to show this how holy I am by having these things. But worse, they're not only bringing themselves down, but they lead others astray. The followers will feel feeling judged and feel compelled to attain a salvation by works that never literally never works out. Now interestingly, um, we, we indeed see this in Evangelical or conservative circles. Or maybe that is what often from the outside evangelicals or conservatives are being charged with, with legalism and being so judgmental against others. And to a certain extent, this is a problem. When Suzanne and I were new, young Christians and joined a church, we came across quite a few people who, who had this attitude um, we are holier than you we're kind of already kind of a separate stage in our sanctification so we are more in a higher class of we want to call this priests and so they would tell us yes when when we also were young christians or when we are new you know we used to do these things but now you know we have grown we no longer need this or we no longer do this because you know we have realized that this is futile or or whatever and so it felt always being put down And judged. But interestingly, I've been noting that on the other side, on the progressive side, a quote unquote church has been emerging over the last years that maybe exemplifies what I've been talking about moving Christ out of the center. It's even displayed even more powerful a quote-unquote church with very self-righteous people who sit over judgment of others. People who who just seem to wait that someone says a wrong word or does a wrong deed, whether it's true or not, whether it's only perceived or not, to devour these people and basically annihilate everything what these people have done in their, in their life and discard it. And whatever these people then try to do to redeem themselves, kind of to, to apologize or, or repent, well, there is no repentance because there is no grace and no mercy in this church. There is... Any sin can't be atoned. Now, I'm saying this, quote-unquote, is a church... Of course it's not, but I think it serves as an excellent example that if you start moving Christ out of the center, and actually not just moving Christ, but actually remove Christ out of the center of our diamond and hollow this diamond out, and that is then what you get. But it doesn't have to be. It also can go the other way around. And that is what I call the prophetic ministry of the church. Now, what do I mean with the prophetic ministry of the church? I don't mean activism, um, advocacy, political agitation, or anything like this. No. What I mean with that is the realization of the promises that come with the kingdom of God that then speak into the fallen world, that then proclaim God's kingdom to the community. And in order to illustrate this, I would like to use another aspect of Christ's new creation kingdom, namely the new humanity. I think you're all familiar with these passages that uh, Apostle that Paul writes regarding the new humanity. We have talked about this, of course, before in our survey. So, for instance, in First Corinthians chapter 12, he writes... For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. Or in Galatians, he writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in Colossians, here, namely in Christ, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. As we have mentioned several times, in the new humanity, this age-old fragmentation and hostility is overcome. But I think when we read these passages, we often just read quickly over them and don't really dwell on them. what Paul is really saying here. When he, for instance, talks about Gru- the the Greeks and the barbarians and the and the scythians he's talking about people groups who would never have fellowship with each other the Greeks were extremely proud and regarded everyone else as a barbarian who couldn't speak greek because what they heard was when somebody didn't speak greek was just a blah 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 some uttering some noises that no one can understand so they are barbarians and the Greeks they're very proud of that they lived in a palace in the city with laws and elected magistrates, whereas the barbarians, you know, they live in villages and they have tyrants as leaders and and they don't have time to do philosophy and sit around all day and, and talk about these things. Now who were the Scythians? Well, the Scythians were an Iranian-speaking people group where Nomads of the steppe of what is now Eastern Europe and Western Siberia. And these guys they lived on, they lived on horseback and, and slept in tents. They didn't have towns or villages. And they were wearing pants, trousers, not like these toga um, garments that the Greeks were wearing. They totally outrageous um, for the Greeks. Their women were even warriors totally incomprehensible for Greeks that that women could do anything else than attending to the house. The Scythians were actually already gone from from the scene of history by the time of Paul. 200, 300 years before Paul appeared on the scene, they were already gone, but the Scythian became proverbial for the barbarians. That's why Paul is using them as an example, saying, you know, in Christ, people who are so different, who, who under other circumstances never could come together to have fellowship. In Christ, this is overcome. Then he talks about Jews and Greeks. And Jews and Greeks often lived in parallel worlds. Different, and lived their own lives separate from each other, and had maybe commercial contact, but otherwise often were separate. But they were not just separate. there were times where there was open hostility between the groups. So for instance, in the city of Alexandria, the second largest city of the Roman Empire, the largest city in the Roman East, which was founded by Alexander the Great, had a large Greek-speaking population, but also there lived a lot of Jews. And in the first century, communal violence erupted between the two groups. So not just a political argument or debate, but actually violence where people were killing each other. And this all culminated in the Jewish Diaspora Rebellion in 115, which led to the slaughter of thousands and thousands of Greek speakers and Jews and wiped out the Jewish population of Alexandria. So when we're hearing Paul's words, now I think we should try to substitute this these terms with, with terms from our times. So, for instance, we could think of the Balkans, the war of the Balkans in the 1990s, and think, in Christ, there is no Serbo-Croat or Serbo-Bosnian. Or when we think of Rwanda and the genocide, in Christ, there is no Houthi or Tutsi. In the Canadian context, I leave it to you to fill in the blanks. In Christ, there is neither such and such and such and such. Well, and that brings me to our time, to the year 2022. And if you look back to the last two years and what happened in the pandemic, we can see there was a lot of upheaval, a lot of racial upheaval. And I'm totally convinced that the promises of the kingdom of God, of the new humanity, speaks right to the core of the problem. The nation of Human beings from God and from each other, and that um, a lived-out prophetic ministry of a church that shows the promise of the new humanity can speak into our society and bring healing by showing that all these different groups that we have seen, you know, have been fighting each other being hostile to each other that in Christ people can come together and become one body become one fellowship praising God and sharing the goodness that comes with it well indeed now I'm I'm at the end of uh, this sermon and of this series and I want to conclude with a hope with a hope I have for us as a church in this time of transition. Namely, I have to hope that as we are opening a new chapter in our church, being a church in transition, having a new constitution, and searching for a new pastor, that we genuinely strive to experience all the aspects and the promises that come with it, to all the aspects of Christ's new creation kingdom. Or maybe... Maybe I should uh, articulate that in in a different way. That maybe in five to ten years, when we're looking back to this time, that then with confidence we can say, yes, we truly lived out the promises that come with Christ's kingdom. We genuinely strived to experience that. For God's glory and God's glory only.